Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. Fittingly, we're listening to the Soweto Gospel Choir singing Umum Bela from their 2018 album Freedom. And it was the freedom for black South African club cricketers to travel that brought the Soweto Cricket Club to the UK. The first black South African cricket club was also the first black township team to travel to England and Wales in 1995. One of the matches on that tour was with South Walian club side Anasagaron. This episode tells the story of that game, as well as the modern history of Anasagaron as a club. We'll hear later from ex-players Steve Williams, Mike Haswell, Neil Davis and Hugh Jenkins. We will also hear from special guest Gordon Templeton, today a member of the Soweto Pioneers Cricket Club, but then... 23-year-old member of the Soweto Cricket Club touring team that came to the UK. But first we hear from a man without whom we may not have understood the evils of segregated sport and the horrors of apartheid. Labour Lord Peter Hayne, ex-MP, Cabinet Minister, campaigner and author, joined us to talk about racism in sport, his love of the game and that game at Unus. Peter, very warm welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, and good to be with you, Stephen. We have one thing in common, uh, Peter. We've both written a book about our parents. Um, Mine was about my father, who was a professional cricketer with Glamorgan. Do you want to say a little bit about your parents and perhaps whether they first introduced you to a a love of sport and cricket in particular? Yes, happy to. I was brought up in South Africa, mainly in Pretoria, and I was sports mad, including uh, about cricket. And my dad was especially strong and uh, enthusiastic about tutoring me in cricket. I actually built a cricket pitch and mowed it and watered it and so on. And my dad used to bowl to me and instruct me as a 13, 14-year-old on how to improve my batting or bowling. So my, my parents were both very supportive. And I, I went to, I, I was very keen at Pretoria Boys High and before that at Hatfield Primary School on playing cricket. And they were, both my parents were anti-apartheid activists, very unusually for white South Africans. None of our relatives was uh, anything like as active. Most of them were shunned us, to be frank. Uh, and to cut a long story short, such was the level of an uh, antagonism and opprobrium that they attracted from the apartheid police state that... They stopped my dad working after jailing them, both my parents uh, and my uh, and banning them from taking part in political activity. They stopped my dad working as an architect and we had to leave uh, South Africa and come to Britain so that he could get a job and sustain his family of four children of whom I was the eldest. Does it sometimes uh, irk you a little bit that you're seen or perhaps painted historically as someone who hated sport and hated cricket uh, rather than someone who loved the game? Yes, because uh, I, I am somebody who loves the game. I'm a very keen rugby supporter, football supporter, back Wales to the hilt at rugby, and I'm a Chelsea fan and a Swansea City fan. So I, I'm somebody who actually, even when I was a member of the cabinet for seven years, always had my leg pulled by fellow cabinet ministers because I turned to the sports pages of the newspapers before the news pages. 
And so I'm, I'm a sports nut. And I was as a boy as well. And I was as a teenager when I burst into national um, controversy and became something of a uh, regarded as a troublemaker and for some in the sporting world and on the on the conservative end of British politics as a hate figure. It reflects a dialogue of the deaf that occurred in the period when I was age 19 that I led a campaign to disrupt the Springbok rugby tour, including when it toured at Swansea in November 1969. And we invaded the pitches non-violently and sat down and were sometimes beaten up as in Swansea for our trouble what i was trying to do is take politics out of sport and yet i was always accused of bringing politics into sport because of course in south Af in under apartheid in south africa i as a boy could not play cricket or any other sport against anybody with a black skin or with anybody as a black skin as part of my team it was against the law school sport was segregated informal sport was segregated provincial and national sport was all segregated. There were only ever tours by white South African teams, never by teams representing the whole of the country. And of course, whites were in a tiny minority. It was uh, an overwhelmingly, and still is uh, South Africa, a black country. Uh, and it was my object to bring, to take the discriminatory apartheid politics out of sport. And the only way to do that was to protest in the militant fashion that we did because nothing else had worked up to that time. And that visit to Swansea, would that have been your first visit to Wales? Or how did the connection with Wales begin? Well, the Wales connection to the anti-apartheid struggle was very strong. There was a Wales anti-apartheid movement which organised the protest in Swansea in November 1969 when the Springboks played against the the All Whites and at at at, um, uh, at St Helens and uh, I was actually not at the, the that match there were 25 of those matches and I wasn't able to go to all of them but some of my friends came down in buses from various students unions and joined the protests and they were the ones who invaded the pitch in the main uh, so, no, I, I, my connection with Wales, although I'd visited Wales on holiday and for political meetings over the years from 1970 onwards, my connection with Wales in an intimate way really began with my selection in 1990 as Labour's parliamentary candidate to succeed the then sitting MP Donald Coleman, uh, which when he tragically died uh, prematurely, of a heart attack, I then found myself in a by-election in April 1991 and became Neats MP. I'd been living in the constituency for over six months in the pit village of Resolven, which has a cricket club as well. Uh, and uh, I, I then subsequently moved to Abadilais and to Nisagaran. Uh, so my connection with, um, with, with Wales really was cemented from 1990 onwards. And the Soweto Cricket Club come to the UK in 1995. Was that a significant thing for you, uh, looking back on that event now? It was a very significant tour in every respect. Personally, for me, yes, because I invited them to play Edneath against my local club, Anasagaran Cricket Club, of which I was a patron. 
and uh, I now live very close to it and have done for the last 15 years. I knew the captain of the team. I'd met him when I went to South Africa. I wasn't allowed to go to South Africa until 1994. And I met Kaya Mayola, uh, who was a first-class cricketer, would have been in the South African national team had he not been a black man. When Soweto decided to tour uh, Britain, he contacted me and said, would you organise a match uh, in Neath? That was the... Um, the context in which uh, Soweto Cricket Club came to Anasagero in, in July 1995. And how much do you remember of the day itself, Peter? I remember it vividly. Um, it was a magical event. It was sunny, <laughs> which it isn't often in the Neath Valley. And the Anasagero Cricket Club is one of the most beautiful grounds in club cricket. And it's a really remarkable uh, venue with a great sense of context about it of a, of a Welsh cricket club in a Welsh former coal mining valley. I invited Ali Bakker, the captain of the 1970 cricket tour that we stopped in its tracks, and he travelled 190 miles from London to join us. And I also invited Tom Cartwright, who you'll remember was a, a medium-paced uh, England swing bowler played test cricket in the 1960s and uh, he married a Neath girl and ended up living in Neath and there's a remarkable turn of history in this because I became his MP and he was the one who withdrew from the England cricket team in 1968. He was replaced by Basil D'Oliveira and that cricket tour was cancelled by the South African government, saying it was a team of the anti-apartheid movement. So I invited Tom Cartwright to the match as well. There was a press conference before it, and it was packed with TV, radio, and newspaper journalists. And the mayor of Neath put on a pre-match lunch and civic reception. And I remember what he said. He said, the name of Soweto rings throughout the world, wherever men want to be free. And uh, afterwards... In their report on the tour, the Soweto chair, Edward Sebukulu, wrote, they treated us like veritable VIPs, and it was the highlight of their tour. So it was an amazing occasion. Enesagaran batted first and ran up a big score. 444 runs were, were shared um, the, on the afternoon. The match was actually drawn on the last ball, uh, and the teams tied on 222 each. Uh, and I said in the post-match reception in the clubhouse, which was a fantastic reception, I said there I was wondering who I wanted to win when Nelson Mandela swooped in and made it a draw. And everybody laughed because it, there was a sense of magic about it. And we had Onkloin Male Voice Choir singing uh, their songs. And then the Soweto players performed as well. And they, they sang their own songs in their African language. It was a, a very moving occasion. There was just one, one twist to it right at the end of the reception. Uh, the captain of the, the opening batsman um, who'd plundered runs off the Soweto, I think he was in the quick top scorer, Steve Williams, was also a police officer and he'd gone on duty after the match. Uh, and he turned up in his police car uh, with the lights flashing and the Soweto boys were absolutely terrified because, of course, under apartheid all their lives, they'd been intimidated and harassed by the police. And so they'd never really met a nice police officer before. 
unlike the ferocious ones they they normally encountered and here was steve williams uh, uh greeting them as one of their fellow cricketers the, the book that you've been most recently associated with um yourself and historian andre odendahl if i've got his name correct odendahl yes but you're pretty close <laughs> okay um pitch battles sport racism and resistance can you tell us a little bit about that book because it seems to fit very clearly with your your, your feeling about the, the longevity of these issues and how they're not easily kind of changed. Yes, it was a book that I co-authored with my close friend, Andre Odendahl, himself a first-class cricketer who played um, for Cambridge when he was a, a PhD student then and played back in South Africa, a white Afrikaner from, uh, born of apartheid-supporting parents from within an apartheid-supporting fa uh, family and community in Queenstown in the Eastern Cape, quite a remote area. We tell the, the story from both our points of view about the struggle to achieve non-racial cricket and non-racial sport in general, and how difficult it was and how tough it was. And then we open up the book to cover the whole context of sport from the 19th century onwards and how it was established mainly by British, um, as part of British colonial rule in South Africa, in Australia, in New Zealand, but particularly in South Africa on a racial basis. So uh, people tend to think of racism in sport in South Africa as something that started under apartheid, which was established after the Second World War, in, began in 1948. But actually, it was begun under the British as part of their colonial rule in the late 19th century. And Cecil John Rhodes, for instance, um, was a firm, uh, took steps to ensure that whites and blacks couldn't play together. We tell all that story, which had never really been told before. Uh, and we also tell the story of sport and globalization. And I found one of the most interesting sections was the piece that I wrote on the Nazi Olympics in 1936 in Berlin. And what I found fascinating about the way Hitler manipulated and exploited the Berlin Olympics in 1936 to sh as a showcase for Nazism was that the arguments that he and the fellow Nazis used against Jews being playing in the German national teams and for discriminating against Jews uh, under Nazi rule. It's exactly the same arguments we used by apartheid, uh, the apartheid government and apartheid supporting whites for excluding black South Africans from equal opportunities in sport. So it is, it's got quite, a, we paint on quite a wide canvas uh, the story of predominantly of the story of South Africa's sport, but shedding a wider light on the whole context of sport globally and particularly in Britain. I was wondering, perhaps to finish, uh, Peter, uh, I guess South Africa's victory in the Rugby World Cup was must have been a very uh, great high point for you. Are there any personal favourite or memorable moments you have that involve the world of cricket? So either a, a game that you've seen or a player that you've watched or even a, a, a something that you've participated in yourself? One of the most memorable moments for me was being smuggled into Lord's Cricket Ground in early 
1970 at a press conference and looking out of the window on a snowy February night and um, seeing that there was barbed wire around the pitch. And I just thought Lords of the magisterial home of, of cricket in, uh, in England for all the world like a, a concentration camp. And that is the depth that it had fallen to uh, in the battle to rid uh, sport in South Africa of apartheid and the Lord's cricket uh, bosses collaborating with apartheid in sport. So that's one image. Another for me is when we first came to Britain in 1966 and I was 16, uh, the sheer amazement and joy of going to Lord's cricket ground, going to the Oval, going to Treadbridge to see the West Indies play England, because that was an amazing tour. And there were incredible West Indies players, Wes Hall, the fast bowler, Charlie Griffiths, um, Gary Sobers, the great Garfield Sobers. So there were players like that and seeing them. And another um, highlight for me, cricket highlight, was being invited to welcome South Africa back into world cricket in 1994 at Lords, and then going up to do the Between the Boundaries cricket interview during the lunch break and going through Lords, uh, through the long room and then up the, the stairs and steps all the way up to the commentary box and overlooking the, the pitch. Uh, it seemed as if you were almost on top of the pitch. So lots of cricket memories. A final one. Uh, which is a thrill for me, is seeing my youngest son, Jake, who I coached and taught to play cricket as a boy, becoming a really top cricketer and playing county youth cricket and playing at the Oval himself. And I have a, a photo of him uh, batting at the Oval. And he actually played for Inesagarin as well when we, when we moved to Neath. OK, we'd like to welcome four members of uh, Anasagerun Cricket Club, who are with us today. We've got Neil Davis, Steve Williams, Mike Haswell, and Hugh Jenkins. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Cheers. We thought we'd start by hearing a little bit from each of you about your cricketing careers. So um, if we begin with Steve, tell us a little bit about your role in the club, Steve, when you played, what you did, and any particular highlights or memories for you. My sort of progression into Anisagero was obviously through my father, uh, Jeff Williams, uh, and my uncle Lawrence, and my other uncle Keith. Uh, and previous to that, both my grandfather and uh, my uh, Lawrence's father also played for Anis. So my history is is a long history of 50, 60, 70 years back. Uh, and I think I made my debut in, I think it was around 82, the last couple of games of 82 season. And I played then up to about 2009, 2008, perhaps. And during that period, then, we were a relatively successful side through the 80s. And then we had a younger crop of players who probably weren't quite as streetwise as the older element. Uh, And it took a little while, probably a good four, five, maybe even six years for that younger crop to become a little bit more... Uh, mature and uh, hardened to the the rigours of uh, South Wales cricket. Uh, And we developed into a very strong side for probably a good 10, 12 years where we were competing for trophies, uh, you know, with the cream of of Welsh cricket. 
And what about so, your personal contribution, Steve? What were you? I was a, a middle order batsman. I, I opened occasionally, but generally I was batting at three, four, five during that sort of period. Going on to highlights, I, I don't want to go on too much, but probably the championship winning sides that I played in were, you know, fabulous sides. And I was fortunate enough to play at Lords as well in 86. Although we lost, it was a great experience. What I will say about sort of 20 years I played or 20 odd years, I was playing with my mates. We were all very uh, friendly bunch. We would socialise together. And those times, you know, are unforgettable and will always be great memories for me, you know? Okay. Uh, Mike, what about you? I played a bit in the South Wales League with Clint Earthley and, and Darwin. I went on tour to Australia and New Zealand in 92, I think it was. And Neil was on the tour and we got on really well. And to be fair, I'd always got on with the Innis boys. So Neil, Neil had spoken to me on the tour. And when we, when we got back from the tour, we, we chatted and played against each other again and then chatted at the end of the season. Joined Innis and I think I had 12, 13 years there which, as Steve said, it, it was like playing with mates you'd known for the whole of your life. You know, I, I think Steve has underplayed the fact that I, th- you know, I, I think it's quite obvious we were probably the best club side in Wales in that decade. And we had a great bunch of boys socially as well. I originally joined as an all-rounder, but then sort of a few injuries and old age, I started just concentrating on the batting and just focused and, and played as an opening batsman most of the time there. But what, what got me was that you could play your own game because you had confidence in the other 10 players. And were there particular we, highlights for you, Mike, in that period? Team-wise, we, we, we'd won the Welsh Cup. We'd, we'd won the Championship, the South Wales Championship, several times. I can't remember how many. Playing with and against some, some really top players. I joined just before the overseas players stopped coming over. But even when they stopped coming over, I mean, I can remember one game we played against Langenic. They had Stefan Jones and Simon Jones opening the bowling, who were both county players at the time. So that that was the sort of calibre you were up against. And, it, and it, was, it, was, it was hard cricket, but it was enjoyable cricket. And you know, unlike today, where I don't think the team socialised too much, there we did socialise a lot. You know, every, every, too much. As friends. Perhaps too much. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Neil? Uh, I played most of my junior cricket in Nice, a Nice boy then, and I went away to college to train to be a teacher. When I came back from college, having qualified and was basically looking for a, a club to play with, and the opportunity arose for me to to, to go to Enniskeira. And to be honest, it was it was one of the best decisions I, you know I ever made, and, and I'm, I've always been so so grateful to the club for giving me the opportunity, really. Started in Ennis in the early 90s and I retired in 2004. And those sort of 13, 14 seasons, I, I wouldn't have wanted to have been anywhere else, you know. That it was a privilege to play, to represent the village, to represent the club across Wales. I never wanted to miss a game, you know. I wanted to play Saturday, I wanted to play Sunday, I wanted to play midweek cricket. And what were you, Neil? What, what, what did you I, I was a, I was a wicketkeeper. I had the best seat in the house sometimes when you'd see that ball talking almost was was just an honour and a privilege to be there. Okay. And Hugh? Right. Well, I um, suppose I'm the daddy of these guys. I'm a little bit older than most of them. Right. Well, my, my um, 
connection with the club goes back probably back to the 60s because I was born in, in the village, not far from the ground. Two good six hits and uh, using my back garden. So every Saturday afternoon, my dad used to walk us up to the ground. I was brought up really watching. I played my first game for Anis in 1971. That was an under-18 team. So I was a nine-year-old playing with 18-year-old guys. It was a bit scary. Um, I made my first team debut in the Village Cup in about 78. I also played in a Welsh Cup winning side in 78. For the final, we played up in Llanidlois against Chur. And we virtually fielded a second 11 that won the Welsh Cup that year. I think I played in the first championship winning side that I played in was 1981. We'd won our first uh, Dan Radcliffe Cup in 79. And then into the 80s, we won it again in 81. I played a couple of games in 81, made my first team debut. South Wales League was becoming, it was more than a semi-pro league. You know, many sides had three, four, five, six, maybe seven or eight people being paid on a Saturday afternoon. And at Ansegeron, we'd stuck to our morals and more or less had stayed with a pretty amateur side. And we sat down as a committee and we decided that if we were going to compete with these other sides, we really had to join the rat race and get ourselves a professional. And we ended up employing a guy called Darren McCoy. What he brought to us was some sort of professionalism. The following year, Darren McCoy had gone back to Australia and Hazi joined us. And that was rocket booster time for Anis. We went through 1994, unbeaten, won the championship by a record 70 points. We were unbeatable. We were unbeatable. 1994, in my eyes, was the finest year that I ever played for Anis. And mm. if you think two years previous, with almost the same group of players, we, we, were, we were quite uh, quite hopeless. And 94, of course, which I know you want to come on to in a minute, was when we, um, when we played uh, Soweto uh, in a game that Peter Hain organised. What do you remember of, of that? How did it come about? How did you, how did it, was it arranged? Right, well, I can't remember the exact year when Peter Hain became MP for Neath. I was in some other function where I was introduced to Peter and um, we had a long talk about his interest in sport and so forth. We just, I, I don't know how we go around to it. I asked him if he'd be interested in becoming a patron of, the, of Ansgaron and obviously uh, he did. He was living quite local to us and he was really good to the club. I'm pretty sure it was 94. He approached me to say, partly involved in getting Soweto Cricket Club who were to tour. And this was after, obviously, the demise of apartheid in South Africa and Mandela come to power and so forth. So he, he approached me and said, would we be interested in being on their tour itinerary? So again, took it back to the committee. Obviously, too good an opportunity to turn down. I had no idea what it was going to involve. But, of course, it became quite a a big news story, uh, certainly in Wales. I ended up doing interviews on both Radio Wales and Radio Cymru in Welsh, which is a bit of a challenge for me as not not a fluent Welsh speaker, but I was able to... uh, to do to do that interview, pre-match function. Probably the only game they played in Wales here, was it? I think it was, yeah. I it was, yeah, yeah, I think it was the only game they played in Wales. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was quite a tour for these guys. Uh, and I think we were quite early in the tour. We had this pre uh, pre-match sort of function, few drinks and sandwiches down at the council centre. Doctor Ali Baka actually came along. These guys were 
were raw, as I recall. They were raw. They really were unsure of themselves. Stepping into a white man's world, I think, is the, that's the best way I can put it. They really didn't know how to... They were so polite. It yeah. was almost, to me, um, I, I found it, it, it was quite off-putting in that they, they, they'd obviously... I'd been brought up in a world that they were now in, which was quite alien to them. But it didn't take them long to realise that they were in the company of friends at Ennis. And that day, it went off like a dream. We'd like to give a very warm uh, Museum of uh, Welsh Cricket podcast welcome to Gordon Templeton, player with Soweto Cricket Club and tourist to the UK and Ireland in 1995. Very, very warm welcome, Gordon. Stephen, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, really appreciate it. I have uh, tears in my eyes just reflecting on the build-up to that tour in 95 and also this opportunity 25 years later um, to, uh, to conduct this interview. Take us back to that period of time in the early 1990s, Gordon. What was happening for you then and your family? <sighs> Stephen, um, yes. <laughs> What did, what did happen then? Uh, obviously, 1994 was our first uh, democratic elections. And as you know, the late, great uh, Nelson Holetlata Mandela was elected president of the first democratic South Africa. And not long after that, um, we then, as the club, got notification from the late Kaya Majolna that, well, in a year's time, we'll be touring England, Ireland and Wales. Believe it or not, at 23, I was one of the older members of the touring squad. Um, and then myself, Harmony and Moses were the three elders. Everybody else was either 19 and my youngest member, uh, Kaya's son, Vugele Majola, and Noel Makanya uh, were promising 16-year-old cricketers. What sort of cricketer were you, Gordon? What, you were a batsman or a bowler? or And how did you learn your cricket? Um, myself as a cricketer, um, all-rounder, uh, all depending on the situation. Uh, medium fast, first change bowler is is what I was back then in the tour. And then depending on um, what the need was, I would either open the batting or come in at five or six, depending on the situation. But I was privileged um, in the in the eighties, in the at the height of apartheid, to get a scholarship to go to Christian Brothers College or St. Patrick's Christian Brothers College, which was the first in South Africa, um, in Kimberley. So even in my own township or home, I was seen as this black kid that wanted to be white because playing a white sport. I used to tell our late father, I'm apolitical. And his response to me was, uh, for the mere fact that you picked up a cricket bat and a ball means that you're as political as we all are. <laughs> as a nine-year-old, I didn't understand that. Uh, later on in my high school career, I then understood the magnitude of what he was talking about based on the segregation, based on the oppression that many South Africans didn't have the opportunity to represent the country and fortunately now are able to represent the country. So taking you a little bit further forward now to 1995, yeah. 
How did it yeah. feel to be part of the first black cricket team to tour from South Africa to a, a, another country? Um, phenomenal. That particular day was was a massive day at the Soweto Cricket Oval. Kaya Majola didn't disclose who was going to be named. I'm going alphabetical order, all right? And um, yeah, once T was missed, I thought, well, yeah, didn't make the side. He grabs the mic. Um, I'm obviously sitting down now. He grabs the mic and our 16th player um, and one of our captains of the club, uh, Gordon Templeton. Well, geez. <laughs> Gordon, you've mentioned uh, Kaya Majola a few times already in the interview. Can you tell me how important he was to the tour and to you as, as a group of young cricketers? Words can't possibly begin to describe uh, what he was. The pain that Kaya had gone through as a talented left-handed uh, batsman um, and uh, left orthodox uh, bowler, in his prime, he wasn't able to represent his country. When we were at the city council in Neath, prior to our match to Enesagarian, was the very first time I saw Peter Hain, Kaya Majola in tears. The very first time. And Kaya was reading out a letter from the late, great uh, Basil de la Vero. All of that emotion uh, with him and Peter speaking and what they had gone through during during our or the oppression of the South African people uh, in Port Elizabeth, um, in Cape Town, Langa, um, Guguletu townships, um, Halishiwi in Kimberley, uh, in the Northern Cape, uh, the Free States, Rocklands, uh, in KZN, in Kwamashu. Oh, the list goes on. But he he was a driver for opportunities to be given to talented players of color. He was seen as an elder, um, obviously because of age and in African culture, somebody older than you, yeah, would be seen as that. He was also the voice that would, that would be able to point out, but do you know why this black child is coming across the way he does? He would point out, do you understand why your coach would be saying this to you? Um, would want you to do X, Y, Z. And that understanding of ideologies, that ability to, to bring about unity. Um, on the field, there were some, <laughs> there were some very touchy moments, moments where uh, wickets, stumps were taken out, um, um, bats, uh, balls, you know, there were, con there were confrontations that, that could have been ugly. Um, to this day, had he not been on the field when these things erupted, um, and for us that had witnessed it and then coached and uh, captained lower teams to handle the sort of tensions there were racially in our country, I don't think we would have been able to progress as a club as far as we have. So Kai Majola was, yeah, <laughs> um, ah, he was a father. He was a father. He encompassed everything. 
he was a giant, whether in the boardroom, whether on the field, whether it is at parents, teachers meetings, he was God sent. He was God sent. How about some memories of the day at Anasagaran? Anasagaran, first of all, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly. Very good. Excellent. Just the spelling of it reminded us of one of our ethnic or cultural um, uh, nations or tribes uh, being uh, Amaklosa. Yeah, just the spelling of it was, hold on, they speak English here. Why would they spell like this? <laughs> didn't make didn't make uh, didn't make any sense to us. So we arrive in Wales in in Neath, and um, we have a reception. Um, and guide me here. Call it call it at the lo uh, local municipality offices where the mayor was present. We then get introduced to Lord Hain. Um, Oh, there were numerous speeches that took place as well. And Lord Haynes' mother had prepared ipapa. So she had a maize meal, corn, flown out of South Africa just for us. All right. <laughs> and there's this gravy that has cheese, um, tomato, onions, much the same as any of our mothers, our African mothers would, you know, would make back home. And Mrs. Hayne had organized all of this, right? So that in itself <laughs> was, was mind-blowing. Well, <laughs> Stephen, upon arrival, <laughs> our clubhouse on a Sunday for a key game would probably have about 100 people. Not only are the media present with all the cameras, uh, all their microphones, we see about 3,000 people around the field <laughs> doing the rounds, you know, and then the match starts. <laughs> uh, uh, all of these are in my notes, so I, I can't recall who won or lost the toss, uh, but needless to say, the figure at the back of my mind, and please correct me, was 2 to 3 was the score that both sides scored. Okay, I think Peter Hayne remembers it as 2-2-2, two, 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 but uh, we won't... Two, two. Yeah, triple two, double Nelson, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, so... Um, and and on both sides, there were batsmen that scored centuries, but what, what made that day particularly special, Stephen, was the fact that after you'd batted, um, and again, I'm not too sure if uh, we batted or bowled first, uh, you were allowed to go around in the crowd and hear individuals were in contact with white people that saw them as people, as human beings, asking for their autographs. And this was, this was a common thread of the tour is a boy, Pete Lapoy, who was the fast bowler at one end, who, when he hit the pads in South Africa, would literally just put up his hand while everybody else appealed. All right? He lands in England, ball hits the pad. When Pete Lapoy appealed for LBW, the whole world knew. He found his voice in England. 
he found his voice on that 95 tour. This is a this is an individual, Pete Lepoy, that had not even left the smallest province in our country, Gauteng. Here he was, 10,000 miles outside of the country, being accepted for who he was as a human being. And there was singing, am I right? Oh, yeah. Well, so as a team sings this after the game, the 3,000 strong come towards the uh, come towards the clubhouse as well, right? Uh, and as we sing in and dance in there, um, there's a request to teach everybody how the song goes. Well, <laughs> um, and bit being shy, um, had to be co coerced, like to lead because he knew the words. Um, Humphrey and Zibela fortunately helped. Hamlin and Zinga uh, also helped in pronouncing the words and also explaining their meaning. Um, because this particular chant, if uh, I loosely translated, uh, here's the opposition, they don't know Soweto, uh, we will thrash them, we will thrash them. But this is sung in Zulu at Hossa, um, with some Tswana and Sutu words in between us again. Um, it was, it's a war cry. But listening to you talk, it feels very yes. much like you were ambassadors for Black South Africa when you came to the UK. Did you feel that level of responsibility? Here's the phrase, Stephen. Here's the phrase. Nelson's children, referring to Nelson Mandela as president, to answer your question directly without a shadow of a doubt. The euphoria on the coach the day we left either the hostel or the commune where we were, and the bus turns, and here is a garbage collector that is white. Never seen in South Africa before, all right? <laughs> uh, cheering, waving. There were just so many talking points that made us ambassadors for, for South Africans, uh, but also educated us of life outside of South Africa. Thank you ever so much for giving your time and uh, and all of the emotion that you've showed. It's uh, I'm not surprised because many club cricketers I speak to here get very emotional when they talk about their cricketing past. But I can see how much it means to you. So um, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks again. And on behalf of the Sweden Cricket Club, um, on behalf of <laughs> all black cricketers, thank you for the opportunity. And I, and I hope we could probably do this uh, live one day with either the club or other clubs being in uh, in Neath and at uh, the Inesagarian Cricket Club as well. And reciprocate the invitation for the Inesagarian Cricket Club to come over and play cricket in, in South Africa, uh, starting off obviously at the home base of what we call the, the home of black African cricket, uh, the Sweda Cricket Oval, uh, Sweda Cricket Club, now the Sweda Pioneers Cricket Club, but yeah, all of that. Um, oh, sport has sport has such power. Ah, uh, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, but let's leave that for another day. Okay. <laughs> Thank right, you again. Then. Thanks. Thanks for bringing up all those emotions again. You could see there was talent there. You know, yeah. whether they they were uh, trying to bowl quick or try to turn the ball or trying to hit it out of you know, the county, but uh, yeah. they were talented cricketers.
during lockdown and the fact I've been stuck at home for the last year, I've sort of been going through old stuff and I actually came across the Soweto tie. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of summed up how Soweto played the game. You know, it, it's a colourful tie and they played the game in a colourful way. Neil, how did it look from behind the stumps? It was packed up there. There was a good crowd already there. Now, before the start, the game ended in a tie, if, I, if I'm yeah. not... Yeah, it was a tie. Yeah. And um, it, But it was right up until the, the very last then that all three results were, were possible because I think they may have been eight or nine down as well. They, they kind of had like a senior player in their team who had represented... South Africa, or had been quite close to representing yeah. uh, a guy called Kaya Majoli. Was it? Was that his name? Yeah, I think I think his name was Kaya, Maj- and and he was almost seemed to be like the um, the the experienced player in the side who all the others were looking up to for guidance. Then he was and, very and much a father the, figure, wasn't he? To yes, yes, very yes, much that, a father figure. That's the expression. Yeah. He, he, And they were all sort of standing at the front of the club. And Di Roberts turned up in uh, one of the um, yeah. motorway okay. vehicles. Yeah. And the reaction on those South African guys' face when a police car came steaming up the front drive was quite alarming, really, yeah. because obviously that they've been sort of living a life where, to them, authority, you know, police and so forth, was obviously quite a threat. As part of the day, we'd... Um, We'd made arrangements for Tona Mail Vice Coyer to come into the mm. club. So we had 30 guys. They sang in uh, in whatever language these guys spoke in so- Soweto, one of the Afri- African languages. Um, and obviously we had um, the choir and the rest of the club singing Welsh and English songs. So that that really helped and relaxed these guys. And they, they really could see they were amongst friendly people. And I think that helped the whole whole yeah. day go by so so much easier. From, from my point of view anyway, because I was part of the organising sort of uh, committee, mm-hmm. if you like, and we were on edge. How would this whole thing play out? Um, but it went like a dream. It was a fantastic yeah. day. I don't recall many of the guys drinking, to be honest. I, well, I think they were mostly like orange juices and so forth. Um, yeah, a lot of Coke was... Yeah. And of course, all our guys, hardly anybody drunk in our team. So it was quite a quiet <laughs> night. Um, we've, we've talked uh, about one event in your cricketing careers, gents. Just kind of to, to sort of finish, if you like. Looking back now on your cricket careers, how important was cricket to you then? And, and how is it important still to you now? Steve, do you want to have a go answering that first? I've made lifelong friends. Uh, through cricket and sport in general, I think it's it, it's it's been brilliant for me. I, I I've and I wouldn't have wished to have played for another club because at the end, it's again on family is just out of this world. It, it, it's been brilliant. Neil, the memories are everything, you know, and and, and I, I I feel lucky that I was able to play with some absolutely amazing cricketers, but also some amazing. Uh, people off the field as well then and sure when we can we all can't wait to get back together again to sit around a table or to share an evening when we can um, recall memories of, of times past as well yeah yeah Mike yeah. I've got great memories at, at Innes you know while I was playing there I had a, a young son 
it was probably four, four or five. And basically he grew up there and that's where he got his love for cricket as well. I'm, I'm lucky I'm still involved in the game a little bit on the coaching side. I'm coaching Malawi because I work out there a lot. I try to inject with the players there the, the team spirit and the camaraderie that we, we had in Innes. And Hugh, finally? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, I was brought up with cricket uh, like Steve. You know, it dragged me along. I lived and breathed it for in excess of 30 years. I'm still a vice president of the club. I was really looking forward last summer. Now I'd retired from work to actually been around the place a bit more but that hasn't worked out but hopefully yeah. hopefully this summer we'll we'll all be able to get back together because you know it's a fantastic club it's been built up to be a really good club it's, there's a strong community uh, ethos within Ansegaron Cricket Club always has been and long may it continue A very special thank you to Gordon Templeton of the Soweto Pioneers Cricket Club for joining us all the way from Johannesburg for today's episode. Many thanks to Peter Hain, to Steve, Mike, Neil and Hugh from us. Peter's latest book, along with Andre Ordendahl, Pitch Battles, Sport, Racism and Resistance, is published by Roman and Littlefield and is out now and available from all the usual online outlets. A big Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast thank you to Margot Teal, associate producer with the Soweto Gospel Choir, for allowing us to use some of their magical music. If you want more, search for them on your favourite music provider or go to their website, www.sowetogospelchoir.com. Join us in two weeks when Andrew Edwards, author of the 2015 autistic memoir, I've got a stat for you, my life with autism, talks about his love of cricket, his time as Manchester United's broadcast statistician and his cricket club, Chirk. There'll be some stats for sure, but also some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Oil Vowel, bye for now. Oes gyda chi stori yw'r rhan i gyda ni? Mae'n croeswch i gysylltu e-bosiwch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com neu ewch i'n tudalu'n Facebook Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast neu i'n tudalu'n Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.